From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. This is Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News today's Talk, TNT. Welcome back to the final hour of Saturday's edition of Weekends with Jason Olborn. I'm delighted to have your company. and Thank you for liking, sharing and commenting on the various different interviews that we've had today. It's been a very busy show and maybe we've saved the best for last. For almost 10 years, Australian researcher and writer Greg Mabry has been a regular contributor to various alternative independent media sites such as Op-Ed News, Off Guardian, Dissident Voice, Gumshoe News, The Greenville Post, Russia Insider, Global Research, Consortium News, Information Clearinghouse, and many more. Greg has been, uh, recently been a host here on TNT Radio. He knows uh, and he writes on Substack under the No Fly Zone banner on gregmabry.substack.com. Greg, being an independent writer, is based in Perth, WA, and he has not stopped in the research. Greg Mabry, welcome to Weekends. Jason, thanks for having us on. Great to be here. So glad that you're able to uh, to come on today. It's uh, an incredible time. 2024 started off with a bit of a bang in terms of global news coverage. It seems to be all happening, to quote one famous Australian cricket commentator. And it certainly is. It's just like bang, bang, bang. We started off the year with Epstein revelations. We uh, moved very quickly into this um, uh, political election campaign going in full swing, uh, all uh, guns at Donald Trump, and yet the people want him. And so it is that there's this great strange mix going on right now. We've got Davos taking place and concluding that the globalists there under the World Economic Forum banner with Klaus Schwab preparing all sorts of arguments for what they think we need to do. We've had Harvey MLA come out at the WEF and deliver a stunning speech that pretty much threw it all back in the face of the globalists. And so what I can't work out is how is it that there is all this support for those against the globalists in the West, but yet there isn't the on-the-ground footwork that's showing us that the people are saying once and for all, government, we don't want you, we don't want to go down this pathway. There's still this strange mix that the empire that seems to be dying in the background is on its last legs and the general public aren't ready to stick the final knife in and move on to some new era of humanity in the West. But I wanted to get your take on how you're interpreting things at the moment and what you see as possibly the biggest uh, situation at the moment. Could it well be the WEF up to some more shenanigans and Albert Baller and the Pfizer people? May they be coming up with something else? What are you seeing that's going on here as we start 2024 with a bang? Yeah, look, um, it, it's a big vista in front of us, Jason, that's for sure. Uh, and it's a bit difficult to sort of know what is the biggest. Um, you know, we were talking earlier on about disease X that seems to uh, be getting a lot of traction at the moment. And and uh, it's obviously been a big theme at the, at the World Economic Forum annual general meeting, or as I call it, the, the globalist circle jerk, <laughs> the annual globalist circle jerk that they have. Uh, Disease X has been, the, I think, from what I can gather, and I haven't taken a you know very close look at the proceedings. I'm only just going on a lot of sort of tweets that people are putting out there. Uh, but certainly, I think two of the most prominent 
matters that have come forward is disease X, of course, and the other one, of course, is the central bank digital currency. Uh, and I think, you know, obviously those two are, to get back to answering your question, are two of the biggest things on the globalist mind. And, and I think, too, they should be two of the biggest matters that are on our mind as well. Let's take, you know, disease X, for example. Sure. The way I read it is that they're looking to basically repeat history here, to put it in, you know, very simple terms. Uh, I think we'll see, you know, some major differences, certainly in the way that they control the narrative. That will be uh, something that uh, they'll have a much better handle on this time. And, it, and until, unless, of course, people, as you say, and as you alluded to earlier on, actually awaken to what is going on. Now, if, for example, we have a repeat of history like we had in the early days of 2020, which is you know now coming up to four years ago, are people, is that the thing that's going to make people go, hang on a minute here, deja vu, have we been here before? Do we want to go through this again? Or are people going to meekly comply with the lockdowns and you know the enforced uh, 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 vaccinations and all of the stuff that we went through last time? Uh, look, I don't know. I, I cannot say. I just really hope, and you and I talked about this yesterday and earlier on, uh, what is it going to take for people to realise uh, not only what these people are up to, but really what's at stake for not just us in the short term, but what is at stake for our kids and our grandkids going forward in the next few years and, and the next decades? I, this is something that I have been, you know, uh, trying to raise awareness about in my, my work and many other people are trying to do same, is that it's not just about what's unfolding here and now and how we respond to it. It's about what these people have planned for the future. And these plans, even COVID, as you and I well know, these plans have been in place and were in place well before 2020. You know, this this was a long time in, in the making. And, um, and, but again, I don't see, Jason, that people are really attuned to that reality. And so we continue to sort of go on with, with life as if, you know, okay, COVID is now over. But hang on a minute, mate. It's not over because they're talking this, this disease X. We've heard quite a few in the last four years, we've heard quite a few uh, possible, you know, uh, scenarios where we're going to see a return of COVID or some variant was going to catch on. But uh, I can't recall in all of that time that we've heard as much uh, about this, the next big thing coming as I've heard about disease X. So something's afoot. There's no question that something is afoot. Um, uh, and whether it plays out like it does in early 2020, I'm not sure. It's very, very hard to say. The other thing that we were talking about is the central bank digital currency. And this is, again, something that myself and others who are trying to look at the bigger picture, long-term view here, this, these are real game changes. The central bank digital currency uh, married with 
the digital ID, married with social credit scores, married with carbon credits scores and all of these sorts of things in your 15-minute cities and all of this sort of stuff. If only we could sort of convey in very simple, very plain terms to people what this all means. I mean, the central bank digital currency means that every move we make, every action we take uh, is going to be monitored minutely on a daily hourly basis they will know exactly what we're doing where we're going what we're spending our money on and they will restrict uh with every means at their disposal our freedom to undertake just ordinary everyday activities and i mean it doesn't stop there i mean i could go on and talk about sort of some of the uh other uh uh technologies that they have planned and i'm not a technical expert and i've only got a sort of a uh, i guess what you might call a, a a philosophical or a political understanding of it or rather than sort of an understanding of the actual technology and how it works but i do understand enough to know that they are hell-bent on restricting every aspect of everything that we do and you know they're even talking about ways of monitoring um, our ability to be able to just express ourselves online. And I mean, that's the thin edge of the wedge if, if ever I uh, heard it. You know, and of course, you know, that I, I can see that that's going to be part of if this disease X does come forward and we see uh, this being rolled out, that they're going to be very, very on top of uh, trying to stop any kind of dissident voices out there. That includes us here on TNT Radio. It includes me doing my writing and anybody else out there on any of the social media platforms. They will be really coming down hard on any efforts to counter their narrative. They will be well prepared this time. There is a lot to unpack in uh, just thinking about disease X and obviously the CBDC, the idea that all of a sudden surveillance is um, the, the law of the day. There's no more privacy. Yeah. We've seen Klaus Schwab bring all that up uh, and tell us that uh, why would privacy be a thing that you have to get used to? This is not going to be the case anymore. Um, yeah. I was surprised by Javier Malay's speech uh, at the WEF. It was uh, quite um, uh, relieving that um, he, even though he was apparently uh, a young WEF leader or something in the past, uh, rejected it, but then turned up there and gave uh, an astounding speech about um, uh, socialism being the problem, not the solution, capitalism being the yeah. way forward. Uh, and very, very clear. And he didn't um, mince his words. He said, we are here to support and when uh, you have a friend in us, it was a big deal. Uh, something else I wanted to bring up, this was from uh, Meryl Nass earlier in the week, published um, yeah. an article on her Substack. You may have seen it. Uh, the WHO had set up a panel to review the handling of the COVID-19 pandemic with the former New Zealand Prime Minister and former Liberian yeah. President to lead the panel. Now, this panel's key findings, as um, Meryl has reported, says that... Um, the initial outbreak became a pandemic as a result of gaps and failings at every critical juncture of preparedness for and response to COVID-19. It's interesting how they always put the cart before the horse and letting yeah. us know that they wanted to get pandemic preparedness. That was their big thing for the international health regulations. But it goes on. It says, years of warnings of an inevitable inevitable pandemic. Why is it inevitable? Only because Fauci told us and because you have gain of function and because you have uh, secret bio labs operating around the world. That's why it was inevitable. Um, a, an inevitable pandemic threat were not acted on. 
and there was inadequate funding and stress testing of preparedness despite the increasing rate at which zoonotic diseases are emerging. So there's already two lies in that opening three lines there. One, it's not zoonotic. It's already been accepted 99.9% .9 around the world that this thing was uh, from a lab, so it didn't come from bats. Yes. So they're still sticking to the bat story. And the idea yeah. that there was uh, there was inadequate funding and the uh, and the pandemic threat was not acted on. What what was event 201, Greg? Do you remember that? That, um, that oh, yeah. took place yeah. in October that was uh, a dress rehearsal. It was a coronavirus. It had matching things to what came out about vaccine hesitancy. Yeah. We talked about lockdowns and masks. And apparently they uh, they weren't on it. So now you know that Helen Clark, former New Zealand Prime Minister, who published this garbage, and there's a lot more I can go through, is clearly in on some globalist agenda here. There's there's no two ways about it. They've already lied to us straight out. And these are the people who are leading the charge to have our governments around the world issue misinformation laws to go against the people who don't happy clap this garbage that they're coming out with. If we don't get on social media yeah. and say, well, they said this and therefore that's it, we're the ones that taken out. Does that... Um, I mean, it gets my it gets my back up. I, I get frustrated by it, but I realise that now we are seeing glaring untruths being put out into official media from the so-called elite untouchables. Does it get you as fired as up up as I am about this when you read that or hear that? Oh, it, it does. I mean, you know, I mean, it's you know, every time I I hear some of the phrases and 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 uh, replies and responses coming out of these people's mouths. You know, I've got to reach for my Ventolin, mate, every time, you know. Uh, I mean, let's take Fauci, for example, and uh, his uh, testimony before, um, uh, you know, the uh, inquiry into the, um, uh, into the COVID pandemic. And I haven't been following it. Uh, I tend to sort of, you know, pick up on bits and pieces here and there. But, I mean, I made the joke about, you know, uh, Fauci himself, you know, the the gain of function man had a serious loss of function in the memory recall department when it came to giving us some straight answers about what actually happened and sort of the decisions taken. Um, so, you know, yeah, look, it, it's it really is absolutely breathtaking the uh, extent to which these people get up there on these podiums and just tell out and out lies, whether they're on a press conference or whether they're on before a panel of inquiry into um, uh, investigating various aspects of the of the um, the COVID pandemic. They lie, they lie, they lie, and somehow or other, that doesn't seem to register with people who would otherwise, you know, see through the kind of nonsense that, you know, our politicians and public figures are prepared to put in front of people. You know, I, I, it just baffles me no end that people cannot see this for what it is and can't see through the lies. You would think that that would be the trigger where people would go, hang on, these people are lying. If they're lying now, they were probably lying 12 months ago, two years ago, they were probably lying right at the start of the pandemic. Mm. And again, when you put that in the context of, you know, you talked about, uh, you mentioned the word inevitable. They keep mentioning uh, words like that, you know, using language in a way that, um, you know, conveys to people, hang on, uh, this pandemic was going to come sooner or later. I mean, that's been out there and I think people still accept that. It was never inevitable as you know that, you know that as well as I do. 
And and just even the fact that, you know, this was not a naturally occurring phenomenon. It was created in the lab. It was created by Fauci and his friends in the bioweapons industry. Um, now, again, I don't know the full details behind it. I've only got sort of a, you know, relatively, you know, superficial understanding of all of the um, the machinations that went on behind the scenes in respect of developing these pathogens, but it's still going on. You know, these people have got uh, patents left, right and centre. If you listen to somebody like David Martin, uh, I'm not sure if you've had him on your show, but um, and this guy is absolutely brilliant in nailing down uh, exactly what these people have been doing now, going back decades, not just a few years, in developing these pathogens. According to David Martin, COVID as a, as a pathogen was developed back in 1965. Mm. So that's going back, you know, nearly, what, um, that's 60 years ago or more. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, if people can get their head around this, you know, COVID just didn't appear out of the blue. And it certainly was not a natural uh, uh, occurrence. And, and David Martin did an extremely good job recently when he presented a, um, uh, uh, did a presentation in front of like, the European Parliament uh, where he laid out exactly, you know, what these people have done. And and, uh, and I would encourage uh, viewers to go along and just find that. It's out there on his Telegram site. Uh, again, very easy to find. Mm. But check up on David Martin's presentation where he does talk about the history of, of um, the development of these pathogens and the fact that they've got patents uh, on these pathogens that they've been developing this plan for a long long time if that doesn't wake people up i'm not sure what does yeah well said look we are running a little bit over time in this final hour we're going to take a break now and come back with more with greg mabry here on weekends you're watching and listening to tnt tnt's darren denslow yeah i'm talking about the illness actually that has done has been doing the rhymes not have we only seen a uh, a mass influx of people waving their covid tests online look i got a red line it's like oh my god people are testing. or people you know trying to encourage others to wear their masks um, but there has been a talk of a dry cough. There have been doctors coming out saying we've seen loads of cases of that. Uh, have you been suffering from, you know, a bit of cough and flu or cold or COVID? Well, Darren, I, COVID. I, I just I just did my eighth test oh, and okay. um, I, I'm just going to keep doing it until I get lines and lines. Why? Well, because work's coming back up, isn't it? Digging deeper with D.D. Denslow on today's News Talk. TNT. We honor you, Father, for all that you've done for us. Chief Division Counsel and DOJ have approved a no-knock breach. We want the subject to be on display, doing the walk of shame, full visual impact. Any questions? Are we becoming a police state? Government told American citizens they couldn't go to church on Sunday. For the first time in my life, I'm saying to myself, am I going to get a knock at the door? FBI warrant, come to the door now! The Patriot Act and FISA were used against Donald Trump. These individuals have commissioned the biggest propaganda play in U.S. history. They don't go after the people that rigged the election. They go after the people that want to find out what the hell happened. We don't need to have a crime. What we need is a person to look at. 
and then we go find out what crime you did. FBI! Our focus is shifting. Our main priority as a bureau is going to be domestic terrorism. It really paints anybody who's right of center. If you're a pro-life, pro-family Catholic, they define you as radical. These are anti-government. We have freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Violent extremists, and they must be dealt with. We can do anything we want. Discussing local, national, and international issues. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. Let me ask you one simple question. Who was the most hard done by during or given in the pandemic years? Was it the average person in the street? Was it your doctor? Was it your local member of parliament? Was it your poor prime minister who had such a hard time and your premier having such a difficult time having to get out and deliver statistics every day and telling you to stay home? Or was it the World Health Organization themselves, those poor people over there on the other side of the planet doing such a tough job for all of us? Do you think it was them that had the hardest time in COVID? I mean, I know it's a ridiculous comment, but I'm just going to refer back to this uh, particular results from the Helen Clark inquiry that Meryl Nass has written about this week. Now, what's going on here is she says the WHO staff, according to the report from Helen Clark, worked extremely hard to provide advice and guidance and support to countries. But they say member states had underpowered the agency to do the job demanded of it. I didn't ask the WHO to do anything. I asked the Australian government to let me get my therapeutics and protect myself, which was banned. And then obviously let the government go about trying to work out if they're going to get some form of preventative medicine as well, which they managed to completely stuff up. Mm -hmm. The next part of this particular report, the lack of planning and gaps in social protection have resulted in the pandemic widening inequalities with a disproportionate socioeconomic impact on women and vulnerable and marginalised populations. So I assume what they're saying there is if you're marginalized or if you're part of the LGBTQ community, you were treated worse during COVID. Makes no sense, including migrants and workers in the informal sector, whatever that is. Health impacts have been compounded for people with underlying health conditions. Education for millions of the most disadvantaged children has been terminated early by the pandemic. I mean, Greg, this is just uh, uh, something that has been written to protect the interests of the WHO and nothing else. I remember following the daily and weekly statistics here in Australia and this entire thing, before the the vaccine was released, there was not one death in an Australian female under the age of 50 before the jab was released. And yet they're saying that it was the exact opposite here in this report. I mean, it's tear your hair out stuff. It is. I mean, you. I think you're back to that, putting the cart before the horse again. You know, they're focusing on um, you know, the, the damage that the actual pandemic itself caused, quote, unquote. But there was no pandemic. I mean, you know, they keep talking about that. But really, you know, I mean, let's face it, there was no pandemic. And I'm of the view, really, that there was no serious uh, virus. To me, COVID was basically a rebranded flu. Uh, it was nothing more serious than that. And really what these people are on about now is that four years after that reality is uh, is coming home to at least a few more people uh maybe not enough people to uh get them to kind of you know say hang on we're not going to go through this again but at least you know we're we're faced with a situation where 
these people are really trying to cover their tracks and they're going back over and in and and looking at all of the ways and means whereby they can turn this around and and say look you know i guess it falls into that category of you know the we made mistakes kind of view jason you know we've heard a lot about that you know people are backtracking on okay well look you know maybe the the pandemic wasn't as bad as what we thought it was, and maybe the vaccines weren't as safe as and effective as what we had hoped they were. Blah blah blah. And and look, we made a few mistakes in this respect, but you know, next time, next time with the next inevitable pandemic, it's going to be all different. You know, and I think what we're seeing here is a kind of uh, a narrative build-up that lulls people into a false sense of security. That okay, look, we accept uh, that you know. They're now acknowledging that they've made some mistakes. They're now acknowledging that, you know, maybe things weren't quite as bad as what they uh, they made them out to be and that certainly the safe and effective thing isn't real. Uh, but all that I can see just leading into and feeding into people's um, uh, false sense of security about the future. Getting back to disease X, for example, if that comes to the fore, uh, that's going to... Uh, I think lead people into accepting any new edicts and mandates that they put out there in respect of responding to this disease X if and when it comes down the pipeline. That's that's how I view this. It's all it's all a bit of a kabuki show, really. It's all just playing politics. It's um, you know devising ways and means by which to commit convince people that hang on, we made a few mistakes. Let's move on. Next pandemic, it's all going to be hunky-dory and we'll deal with things a lot better. That's just my impression of it all. It's interesting, isn't it? Because at the same time as they're saying, oh, look, we made mistakes, wasn't as severe, et cetera, all this backtracking that goes on. But at the same yeah. time, you've got CBDC, uh, which is basically compulsory surveillance of, of the use it of is. your money that's no longer your money. And then the other part of it is that you're moving towards a situation, which is what they really wanted all along, which is compulsory medicine. If the WHO yes. gets medical sovereignty, it, it doesn't matter anymore what Scott Morrison said here in Australia, that medicine is not compulsory in this country, that also goes out the window. Worse still, the Australian government or any government around the world doesn't even have the right to take on this unelected body of private people that is uh, trying to take over the world and make us feel sorry for them because they didn't have enough money or respect. It's almost like there's a, a, a they're going to need a sign at the WHO, please be kind when you serve us like they do at the, at the bank teller or at the airport yeah. or something like that. Yeah. It, 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 it's just preposterous that they can play victim after all of this and that we don't see it. And I guess that's where my um, frustration comes from. Greg, we could talk about um, uh, this and disease X, et cetera, uh, forever, and many people would, but um, your work expands into other areas. And I wanted to talk to you um, about the other incredible story that broke uh, last year out of Israel when we saw that um, uh, it was invaded. Uh, what some people argue was uh, known, there was intelligence information saying that this was coming. Why would Netanyahu allow for his country which is the almost a fortress to be invaded the way it was. And this has led to um, uh, devastating consequences in Gaza. We've got the world very much divided now into two corners, those that want to stand up for what is obvious, a form of collective punishment against the, uh, the people of Gaza. But at the same time, the retaliation from those rejecting that that is a satisfactory uh, method to clean out the Hamas terrorists are also becoming a little bit... Uh, 
in favour of collective punishment, perhaps against the Israeli people and on a wider scale against Jewish people all around the world with rising in anti-Semitism. Two wrongs, of course, don't make a right, but it's a very, very complicated situation. And I wanted to get your perspective on how you're seeing it. And if possible, is there a way out of this at the other end? Uh, look, um, as, as we both know, um, and again, this is something that a lot of people seem to um, seem not to take into account. The Hamas attack didn't come out of the blue. Um, you know, for all of those people who are decrying uh, whatever it was, whatever atrocities and uh, massacres and murders they engaged in on October the 7th of last year, uh, you know, in my view, pale into comparison with what the Israelis have been doing to the Palestinians now for over 70 years. And that's not just me that's saying that. There are many other people, including many Jewish writers and commentators who I've, uh, I take a great deal of interest in what they're doing and what they say, even you know, people like uh, Gideon Levy, who's a columnist for Haaretz, one of the, the better um uh, Israeli uh, newspapers. Um, so, you know, it's not just him. There are many, many other uh, Jewish people who are pointing out and probably are at pains to point out that, you know, for those people who decry the Hamas attacks, and of course they were horrific, they were terrible. But, you know, that has to be put into context and perspective. And when, if there's one debate, uh, Jason, that uh, is never burdened, as I like to say, with con too much context and perspective. It's the discussion over Israel's treatment of the Palestinians. You know, it, it, it really has to be put into a larger context and perspective of Israel's role, not just in the way it's treated the Palestinians, but it goes back to Israel's creation. It goes back to also Israel's role uh, in the Middle East, in, in, in the way that it has conducted itself within and across the Middle East, not just with the Palestinians, of course, with all of the other countries um, uh, that, you know, that Israel, uh, all its neighbours, for example, uh, you know, whether it's Syria, Lebanon, uh, uh, any of these other countries that it's had this um, fractious relationship with over the years. Much of that, if not all of it, certainly much of it is of Israel's own making. It, to be honest with you, look, the, the biggest enemy to Israelis, the biggest enemy to Jews who live in Israel isn't from the Palestinians or Hamas or any of these other terrorist groups. The biggest enemy to Israelis themselves is its own government. Now, again, uh, there's been a lot of reports, for example, that the uh, and very and confirmed reports that the Israeli army uh, had, you know, was responsible for the death of many of those civilians that died on October the seventeenth, and in the immediate aftermath, that you know there was a report on um, uh, yesterday that uh, um, that I watched with um, Amy Goodman from Democracy Now. She was interviewing Gilad. Um, uh, she was interviewing. Um, um, uh, a, a, an Israeli journalist, and he was saying directly that uh, an Israeli commander uh, gave the order for a Palestinian home to be bombed because they understood that 
Hamas terrorists were in this home, but there were also um, uh, Israeli uh, captives and hostages in the home. But they still gave the order to destroy the, the property. This was just one, one example. So again, my point is simply this, that the Israelis themselves, and I'm getting some signal that more and more Israelis are starting to wake up to the fact that it isn't really, number one is that you know, they are starting to put things into a greater context and perspective themselves. But they're also, too, realising that it's not the Palestinians that are the real enemy there. It's not Hamas or any of these terrorist groups within and across the Middle East. It's really the Israeli government that are placing uh, ordinary average Israelis in danger the whole time by sheer virtue of their bloody-minded policy that they've been you know, allowing to kind of unfold within across the Middle East now for over 70 years. And I don't see any sign that that's going to be tempered. Uh, you know, Netanyahu, as far as I'm concerned, is completely and utterly out of control. Mm. He is out of control. Um, they say that Americans could, you know, uh, could rein him in. Perhaps they could. Uh, I think certainly the only way that is going to happen is if, you know, the Americans were willing to actually cut off funding to Israel, but I don't see that happening. And, of course, there was a vote initiated by um, Bernie Sanders uh, in, in, in the Senate just recently um, that was, he was pushing for a ceasefire. Now, I don't know how serious Sanders was. I think really this was a bit of a dog and pony show, that it was all designed to, you know, make it look like, you know, that the Senate was, um, that there were some people in, in the Senate that wanted to push for a ceasefire, and perhaps there were. But ultimately that vote was defeated, I think, by about 75 to about 10 or something thereabouts. I can't recall the exact details. So it never got up and running. So we're not going to see a ceasefire. Um, certainly not going to see a ceasefire that's initiated or pushed by the Americans. Um, and I don't see that kind of a thing emanating from any of the other Western countries at all. So we've got a situation in Israel where uh, the fighting will go on, the destruction will go on. Uh, it's, it's anybody's guess as to where and when that's going to be finished and I don't see that it's going to stop unless we do get some kind of co coerced, sorry, concerted international action uh, that that really brings Israel uh, to the point of saying, hang on, we've got to stop this. You know, you've got the South Africans that have taken the the uh, the case to the International Court of Justice. There are several other countries apparently that are following suit. I think Indonesia is one, Brazil is another one. There are two or three other countries as well now that are joining forces with South Africa to uh, put more pressure on Israel to, you know, to stop the bombing and stop the massacres and stop the uh, attacks and what have you. But really how it's going to unfold from here, Jason, I really don't know. It's it's very difficult to say. But, you know, the, the response, the, I guess if I want to say something as a final point, the the response that we have seen from Israel to the Hamas attacks has been completely over the top. And one other thing that I will also add, and this is for people who might be inclined to be sympathetic with Israel or to support Israel, is understand a little bit about the background and the history behind these Hamas attacks. You also mentioned too, um, did 
Israel, were they aware of these attacks? In my view, it's it's clear they were aware of these attacks. They allowed them to continue, uh, and and one can only guess at the the end game of that is that ultimately Israel wants to completely destroy uh, what's left of Palestine. Is the other economic factor here as well too? It's it's well known, although not much talked about, but it's well known that um, you know the the Palestine region contains uh, both underneath the ground and in and in the various seas around it, enormous quantities of uh, minerals. There's oil and gas, obviously, but there's trillions of dollars worth of minerals and resources that are up for grabs within and across that area in the Middle East. And, you know, if you uh, use the old adage, follow the money, what we're looking at here isn't something about, you know, hang on, we're going to take revenge for an attack on Hamas. This is an excuse, in my view, for Israel to ultimately take over the whole area and create that greater Israel, which has always been its plan all along. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it, how this could play out. And, of course, there's the comments there that the Israeli people, uh, that one of their biggest enemies is their own government. And we've seen that, by the way, that they were forced to take the Pfizer uh, up front as an experiment, and uh, that was completely shocking. Uh, look, we're running over time again, so what we're going to take another break, and we'll be back with our final segment of the hour and the show today with Greg Magru. And here with me, Weekends with Jason Olborn on TNT. TNT's Patrick Henningsen. Hamza Dahoud was the eldest son of the Gaza Bureau for Al Jazeera, while Dahoud, who previously lost other family members in Israeli bombing raid. And we would say that this is probably, in terms of conflicts, uh, this many journalists have been lost, uh, killed, injured in the whole of the Second World War, and that lasted uh, a number of years. And only in the last three months are we scraping 100 on the uh, journalist uh, fatality list, which is coming fast and furious out of Gaza. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are opportunity zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. Discussing local, national, and international issues. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT.
Welcome back to Weekends. And before the break, speaking with Greg Mabry about the situation in Israel. Greg, just to circle back a little bit more, the betrayal of many people and peoples around the world by their own governments. I find it very confusing, the uh, reaction, perhaps you might know a little bit more, or the lack of reaction to the compulsory or virtually compulsory behaviour in Israel to the jabs during the period uh, where there was digital passports, etc., green lights and red lights. There must be a, a lot of resistance there. And the funny thing was that when you compared the outcomes for Palestinian people versus Israeli people in that period, Palestine defeated Israel on every metric when it came to infection, uh, sickness, hospitalization and death. How do you read that? Well, my understanding, of course, uh, on that is that the Palestinians weren't uh, under as much uh, or endured as much coercion to get the vaccination. I, I think in, initially they were they not denied uh, vaccinations or that, that they weren't uh, considered a priority to get the vaccination. And, of course, this would have been back in the days when, you know, people were, you know, still uh, succumbing to a lot of the fear porn that was surrounding COVID itself. And you know, they were awaiting, it was in that period when they were, everybody was awaiting, you know, the release of the vaccination, uh, you know, which they could then take and, and hopefully give them some kind of um, uh, peace of mind. Uh, and my understanding is that, you know, that the priority was for Israelis to get the vaccination before any of the Palestinians. So that may be related to the number of Palestinians who actually were vaccinated. I don't know the numbers on that one, Jason, to be honest with you. Uh, and I'm not sure if I'm answering your question uh, as as you uh, would like and or I've interpreted your question the way that you, you put it out there. But uh, my, I, I guess I did hear somebody say that the Palestinians in a way have lucked out in relation to the vaccination, but you wouldn't say that they were lucking out now in terms of how Israel is responding to them after the, the Hamas attacks. Uh, but getting back to um, uh, the situation uh, here with respect to the Israelis, they need to wake up to the fact that like I said before, and I think it's important to stress this, is that, you know, uh, the Palestinians, Hamas, are not their enemies. Uh, it's the Israeli government that is their biggest enemy. And again, we've got the COVID vaccination program that they put into place, which is probably, you know, um, clear evidence of that. And then, of course, increasing number of reports about how many Israelis were actually terrorised and or uh, murdered or massacred by their own army and not by the Hamas terrorists themselves or the Hamas freedom fighters, call them whatever you like. I think once that starts to come out, and my understanding is that there will be some kind of an investigation at some point into the events of, of, of October the 7th and, and what happened in the immediate aftermath, uh, you know, Gideon Levy was talking about this yesterday with um, with um, uh, with Democracy Now, and he was talking about uh, their hope that there will be some sort of a, a you know a, a proper investigation into those events. Uh, where that's going to lead, I don't know. But in the meantime, of course, it's probably all academic, certainly for the Palestinians, because they're being murdered and massacred, left, right, and centre. Um, you know, it's just absolutely um, appalling what is happening, you know, there really needs to be a complete and total ceasefire, if only because uh, to allow 
people and uh, people in Israel to conduct a, tie, a, a, a conducted proper investigation to take stock of what actually happened on October the 7th and start holding a, a few people to account on the Israeli side of the border, the ones who were responsible for letting the Hamas uh, 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 terrorists in and to create havoc on that day. You know, there has to be a proper investigation into that. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know, I, I just um, uh, am dismayed at the way things are unfolding the way that they are. You have to stop and take a deep breath and wonder how it is that people can't seem to uh, realise that they hold all the power. Uh, but unfortunately, it has to be done on, on, on a collective basis. And it's interesting that people will be pushed into a corner and behave on a collective basis when the government tells them to do it. But uh, collectivism as a as a way forward is is, is known to be a, a failure. Socialism, uh, Harvey MLA made that wonderful speech at the WEF of all places at Davos uh, and, and basically um, poured uh, cold water on the whole idea of governments around the world looking for a quality of outcome and socialism as a solution. It's yeah. not. Yeah, and and, and this not. is a very odd scenario. Um, Greg, I've looked at the time. We've only got about um, about six or so minutes left. And I had to ask you about one of the subjects that you and I follow dearly. And I know you're a, a famous historian on this subject, in, <laughs> on the story of JFK. Why do you think, now that we're at the 60th anniversary last November, why do you think it is the story that just does not go away? Uh, um, wow. Um there are just so many elements to this um, to this story. That's another, one of the reasons why it won't go away. Uh, over sixty years, you're going to build up a, a body of of evidence, uh, conspiracy theories. Uh, you're going to build up a, um, a a mountain of speculation about this particular event. Uh, but it's it's more than that. Uh, I mean, you've got a situation with JFK where uh, a lot of people see uh, 1963 as a major turning point in American history. And, you know, I certainly do. Um, the, it's hard to pinpoint a uh, an event that took place in American history that changed the country uh, so profoundly um, and and set, in my view, the country up for uh, putting it on the path where it's led it to where we are today. Uh, I'm not suggesting for one moment that uh, JFK, um, you know, was the perfect president or was a great president for that matter. He possibly was not, uh, you know, the greatest president. Uh, you know, I've been very critical of JFK in many respects uh, of various aspects of his presidency. We don't have time to go into that now at the moment. But certainly I I, I give uh, Kennedy uh, a lot of kudos for resisting uh, the kinds of forces that he clearly saw uh, coming into influence uh, American policy and American um, uh, actions. He could see clearly that if we allow these forces to gain a foothold in America, in American politics and American system, that we would end up with a system that's not too far different from the one that we have got now. So for that reason alone, I acknowledge that uh, Kennedy could see um, 
you know, that uh, by allowing these globalist forces uh, to exercise the kind of power that uh, they are trying to exercise now that America was done for. A good example of that was Kennedy recognised um, the role of uh, the Federal Reserve, for example, and the role of the international uh, globalist bankers uh, in terms of how they held control over um, over the whole economic and the financial system of the world. I mean, there is a, one of the theories, it's not a common theory, one of the theories is that uh, uh, that Kennedy was, um, uh, was done in by the globalist bankers because he wanted to uh, print his own money. And he, he wasn't the first president who tried to do that, and he wasn't the first president who tried to do that that was ultimately assassinated either. So you've got that kind of thing that's a good example now of when you look at now the central bank digital currency, we're heading in that direction. We're heading in the direction where these people will ultimately have complete, total, absolute, 24-7 control over everything we do and say, and it'll be via a, our currency, our monetary system, our financial and our economic system. So in that respect, Kennedy, you know, could see a lot of dangers down the track. And all of it based on fear, manufactured yeah. fear, manufactured disease, manufactured fake solutions. And you just wonder how it is, like we keep alluding to almost every day ad nauseum, how long will it be before people realise and stand up against it? Looking forward, though, 2024, big year. I've brought it up a few times already. We've got multiple elections. We've got Russian elections um, uh, in March, India in April, uh, Canada in October, US November, UK somewhere before January next year. It looks like India and Russia will be uh, Putin and Modi will be returned. But in the West, anything's possible. Looks like Trudeau's in all sorts of trouble. Uh, Trump is uh, a juggernaut yet again. Biden just looks worse by the day. Talk about mm. Michelle Obama coming in to replace. And I think all you'd have to do if Michelle Obama was the candidate was play those videos where she praises Harvey Weinstein and wonder how long will it be before we realise, well, that wasn't a good move. Uh, yeah. And then you've got uh, the same with um uh, in the UK, although Rishi Sunak, almost unelectable over there. So there's going to be big change coming in the West. Do you see yeah, that as, as, as a sign of hope? Uh, short answer, no. Um, and look, you know, I mean, I, I like to be a, a glass half full kind of guy. Uh, but no, I don't really see that as a, as any great sign of hope. I got a text yesterday, Jason, from my mate who was saying he's a big Trump fan and he was saying, hey, look, Tulsi Gabbard and Trump, that's the dream team sort of thing. And I'm going, mate, come on. You know, there is no dream team. You know, it, you know, whatever you might like to think of Trump, you know, he is not going to turn the ship around. You know, he's not the saviour. Um, you know, it, it's, it's just not going to happen. Trump did come out, though, to be fair, he did come out this week and getting back to central bank digital currency, saying that he would never allow that to happen on his watch. But what Trump says he won't allow to happen on his watch and what will happen on his watch with or without his cooperation is another thing altogether. And the same can, can be said about any of these leaders. These people are not the, the final decision makers. So we can change them, but at the end of the day, does anything actually change itself?